chapter six part one of eve of the revolution by carl becker this librivox recording is in the public domain testing the issue the die is now cast the colonies must either submit or triumph george the third we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness thomas jefferson two months and ten days after mr hutchinson embarked for england john adams the honourable thomas cushing mr samuel adams and robert treat payne set out from boston from mr cushing's house and rode to coolidge's where they dined with a large company of gentlemen who went out and prepared an entertainment for them at that place a most kindly and affectionate meeting we had and about four in the afternoon we took leave of them amidst the kindest wishes and fervent prayers of every man in the company for our health and success the scene was truly affecting beyond all description affecting the four men who in this manner left boston on the tenth of august seventeen seventy four were bound for philadelphia to attend the first continental congress even samuel adams in excellent spirits a little resplendent and doubtless a little uncomfortable in his new suit and new silk hose could scarcely have known that they were about to share in one of the decisive events in the history of the modern world the calling of the continental congress had followed hard upon those recent measures of the british government which no reasonable man could doubt were designed to reduce the colonies to a state of slavery in may seventeen seventy three the east india company whose privileges in india had just been greatly restricted was given permission to export tea from its english warehouses directly to america free of all english customs and excise duties the threepenny duty in america was indeed retained but this small tax would not prevent the company from selling its teas in america at a lower price than other importers either smugglers or legitimate traders could afford it was true the americans were opposed to the threepenny tax and they had bound themselves not to import any dutied tea yet neither the opposition to the tax nor the non-importation agreements entered into had prevented american merchants from importing during the last three years about five hundred and eighty thousand eight hundred and thirty one pounds of english tea upon which the duty had been paid without occasioning much comment with these facts in mind hard-headed american merchants to whom the company applied for information about the state of the tea trade in the colonies assured the directors that the americans drank a great deal of tea which hitherto had been largely smuggled from holland and that although they were in principle much opposed to the tax mankind in general are bound by interest and the company can afford their teas cheaper than the americans can smuggle them from foreigners which puts the success of the design beyond a doubt the hard-headed merchants were doubtless much surprised at the universal outcry which was raised when it became known that the east india company was preparing to import its teas into the colonies and yet the strenuous opposition everywhere exhibited rather confirmed than refuted the philosophical reflection that mankind in general are bound by interest 
neither the new york and philadelphia merchants who smuggled tea from holland nor the boston and charleston merchants who imported duty tea from england could see any advantage to them in having this profitable business taken over by the east india company mr hancock for example was one of the boston merchants who imported a good deal of duty tea from england a fact which was better known then than it has been since and at philadelphia john adams was questioned rather closely about mr hancock's violation of the non-importation agreement in reply to which he could only say mr hancock i believe is justifiable but i am not certain whether he is strictly so justifiable or not mr hancock would not wish to see the entire tea trade of america in the hands of the east india company and indeed to whose interest would it be to have an english company granted a monopoly of a thriving branch of american trade to those doubtless who were the consignees of the company such as the sons of thomas hutchinson or mr abram lott of new york certainly no private merchant who is acquainted with the operation of a monopoly will send out or order tea to america when those who have it at first hand send to the same market and therefore since the company have the whole supply america will ultimately be at their mercy to extort what price they please for their tea and when they find their success in this article they will obtain liberty to export their spices silks etc this was the light in which the matter appeared to the new york committee of correspondence john dickinson saw the matter in the same light a light which his superior abilities enabled him to portray in more lurid colours the conduct of the east india company in asia he said has given ample proof how little they regard the laws of nations the rights liberties or lives of men they have levied war excited rebellions dethroned princes and sacrificed millions for the sake of gain the revenues of mighty kingdoms have centred in their coffers and these not being sufficient to glut their avarice they have by the most unparalleled barbarities extortions and monopolies stripped the miserable inhabitants of their property and reduced whole provinces to indigence and ruin thus having drained the sources of that immense wealth they now it seems cast their eyes on america a new theatre whereon to exercise their talents of rapine oppression and cruelty the monopoly of tea is i dare say but a small part of the plan they have formed to strip us of our property but thank god we are not sepoys nor marathas but british subjects who are born to liberty who know its worth and who prize it high for all of these reasons therefore because they were in principle opposed to taxation without consent and by interest opposed to an english company monopolizing the tea trade and perhaps because they desired to give a signal demonstration of the fact that they were neither sepoys nor marathas americans were willing to resort to the use of force in order to maintain their own rights by depriving the east india company of its privileges when captain curling's ship arrived in charleston the people in that town assembled to deal with the grave crisis were somewhat uncertain what to do with the company's tea on the very ship which brought the company's tea there were some chests consigned to private merchants and certain enthusiastic patriots attending the meeting of citizens affirmed that the importation of duty tea by private merchants contrary to the non-importation agreement was no less destructive to liberty than the importation of tea by the east india company 
all this it was said evinced a desire of not entering hastily into measures in the end the company's tea was seized by the collector and stored in the vaults under the exchange and new york and philadelphia the company's tea ships were required to return to england without landing and it was only at boston where governor hutchinson whose sons had been appointed by the company as its consignees refused return clearance papers that the tea some fourteen thousand pounds worth of it was thrown into the harbour throwing the tea into the harbour raised a sharp sense of resentment in the minds of britons the common feeling was that unless the british government was prepared to renounce all pretence of governing the colonies something must be done there were a few such as josiah tucker who thought that the thing to do was to give up the colonies in their opinion colonies were in any case more of a burden than an advantage the supposed advantages of colonies being bound up with restrictions on trade and restrictions on trade being contrary to the natural law by which commerce should be free but the natural law was only a recent discovery not yet widely accepted in england and it did not occur to the average briton that the colonies should be given up the colonies he supposed were english colonies and he thought the time had come to establish that fact he had heard that the colonies had grievances all he knew was that the government had good-naturedly made concessions for the last ten years and as for this new grievance about tea the average briton made out only that the americans could buy their tea cheaper than he could himself obviously the time had come for old england to set the colonies right by showing less concession and more power four regiments as general gage said would do the business the average briton therefore gave his cordial approval to four coercive measures passed by overwhelming majorities in parliament which remodelled the massachusetts charter authorized the governor to transfer to courts in other colonies or to england any cases involving a breach of the peace or the conduct of public officers provided for quartering troops on the inhabitants and closed the port of boston until the east india company should have been compensated for the loss of its tea in order to make these measures effective general gage commander of the american forces was made governor of massachusetts to what extent he would find it necessary to use the military depended upon the bostonians the die is now cast the king wrote to lord north the colonists must either submit or triumph the king's judgment was not always good but it must be conceded that in this instance he had penetrated to the very centre of the situation massachusetts very naturally wished not to submit but whether she could triumph without the support of the other colonies was more than doubtful and it was to obtain this support to devise if possible a method of resistance agreeable to all that the congress was now assembling at philadelphia the spirit in which the colonies received the news of the boston port bill augured well for union for in every colony it was felt that this was a challenge which could not be evaded without giving the lie to ten years of high talk about the inalienable rights of englishmen as charles james fox said all were taught to consider the town of boston as suffering in the common cause this sentiment john adams found everywhere expressed found everywhere as he took his leisurely journey southward that people were very firm in their determination to support massachusetts against the oppression of the british government in respect to the measures which should be adopted to achieve the end desired there was not the same unanimity mr adams at the age of thirty-eight years never having been out of new england kept his eyes very wide open as he entered the foreign colonies of new york and pennsylvania in new york he was much impressed with the elegant country seats 
with a bountiful hospitality and the lavish way of living a more elegant breakfast i never saw this was at mr scott's house rich plate a very large silver coffee-pot a very large silver teapot napkins of the finest materials toast and bread and butter in great perfection and then to top it off a plate of beautiful peaches another of pears and another of plums and a musk-melon were placed upon the table nevertheless in spite of the friendliness shown to him personally in spite of the sympathy which abstractly considered the new yorkers expressed for the sad state of boston mr adams was made to understand that if it came to practical measures for the support of massachusetts many diverse currents of opinion and interest would make themselves felt new york was very firm in the cause certainly but mr mcdougall gave a caution to avoid every expression which looked like an allusion to the last appeal he says there is a powerful party here who are intimidated by fears of a civil war and they have been induced to acquiesce by assurances that there was no danger and that a peaceful cessation of commerce would effect relief another party he says are intimidated lest the levelling spirit of the new england colonies should propagate itself into new york another party are instigated by episcopalian prejudices against new england another party are merchants largely concerned in navigation and therefore afraid of non-importation non-consumption and non-exportation agreements another party are those who are looking up to government for favors these interests were doubtless well enough represented by the new york deputies to the congress whom mr adams now saw for the first time mr jay it was said was a good student of the law and a hard worker mr low they say will profess attachment to the cause of liberty but his sincerity is doubted mr alsop was thought to be of good heart but unequal as mr scott affirmed to the trust in point of abilities mr duane this was mr adams's own impression has a sly surveying eye very sensible i think and very artful and finally there was mr livingstone a downright straightforward man who reminded mr adams that massachusetts had once hung some quakers affirmed positively that civil war would follow the renunciation of allegiance to britain and threw out vague hints of the goths and vandals confiding these matters to his diary and keeping his own opinion mr adams passed on to philadelphia there the massachusetts men were cordially welcomed twice over but straightway cautioned against two gentlemen one of whom was dr smith the provost of the college who is looking up to government for an american episcopate and a pair of lawn sleeves a very soft polite man insinuating adulating sensible learned insidious indefatigable with art enough and refinement upon art to make impressions even upon mr dickinson and mr reed in pennsylvania as in every colony mr adams found there was a tribe of people exactly like the tribe in the massachusetts of hutchinsonian addressers some of this tribe had managed to elbow their way into the committees of deputies to the congress at least from the middle colonies and probably from south carolina as well the most spirited and consistent of any of the deputies were the gentlemen from virginia among whom were mr henry and mr r h lee said to be the demosthenes and the cicero of america the latter mr adams liked much a masterly man who was very strong for the most vigorous measures but it seemed that even mr lee was strong for vigorous measures only because he was absolutely certain that the same ship which carries hence the resolutions will bring back the redress if he supposed otherwise he should be for exceptions 
from the first day of the congress it was known that the massachusetts men were in favor of vigorous measures vigorous measures being understood to mean the adoption of strict non-importation non-consumption and non-exportation agreements there were moments when john adams thought even these measures tame and unheroic when demosthenes god forgive the vanity of recollecting his example went ambassador from athens to the other states of greece to excite a confederacy against philip he did not go to propose a non-importation or non-consumption agreement for all this the massachusetts men kept themselves well in the background knowing that there was much jealousy and some fear of new england leadership and well aware that the recent experience with non-importation agreements had greatly diminished in the mercantile colonies of new york pennsylvania and south carolina the enthusiasm for such experiments the trouble with non-importation agreements as major hawley had told john adams was that they will not be faithfully observed that the congress have no power to enforce obedience to their laws that they will be like a legislative without an executive did congress have or could it assume authority to compel men to observe its resolutions to compel them to observe for example a non-importation agreement this was a delicate question upon which opinion was divided we have no legal authority said mr rutledge and obedience to our determinations will only follow the reasonableness the apparent utility and necessity of the measures we adopt we have no coercive or legislative authority if this was so the non-intercourse policy would doubtless prove a broken reed massachusetts men were likely to be of another opinion were likely to agree with patrick henry who affirmed that government is dissolved fleets and armies and the present state of things show that government is dissolved we are in a state of nature sir if they were indeed in a state of nature it was perhaps high time that congress should assume the powers of a government in which case it might be possible to adopt and to enforce non-intercourse measures in this gingerly way did the deputies lift the curtain and peer down the road to revolution the deputies like true britons contrived to avoid the highly theoretical question of authority and began straightway to concern themselves with the practical question of whether the congress with or without authority should recommend the adoption of strict non-intercourse agreements upon this question as the chief issue the deputies were divided into nearly equal groups mr galloway mr duane and mr rutledge were perhaps the leaders of those probably a majority at first who were opposed to such vigorous measures fearing that they were intended as a cloak to cover the essentially revolutionary designs of the shrewd new englanders we have too much reason to suspect that independence is aimed at mr lowe warned the congress and mr galloway could see that while the massachusetts men were in behavior very modest yet they are not so much so as not to throw out hints which like straws and feathers show from which point in the compass the wind comes in the early days of the congress if we are to believe mr hutchinson this cold north wind was so much disliked that the new york and new jersey deputies and others carried a vote against the adoption of non-intercourse agreements agreed to present a petition to the king and expected to break up when letters arrived from dr franklin which put an end to the petition the journals of the congress do not record any vote of this kind but a number of things are known to have occurred in the congress which the journals do not record on september seventeenth the famous suffolk resolves were laid before the deputies for their approval the resolutions have been adopted by a county convention in massachusetts and in substance they recommended to the people of massachusetts to form a government independent of that of which general gage was the governor urged them meanwhile to arm themselves in their own defence 
and assured them that no obedience is due from this province to either or any part of the coercive acts these were indeed vigorous measures and when the resolutions came before congress long and warm debates ensued between the parties mr galloway afterwards remembered and he says that when the vote to approve them was finally carried two of the dissenting members presumed to offer their protest to it in writing which was negative and when they then insisted that the tender of the protest and the negative should be entered on the minutes this was also rejected later in the month september twenty eighth mr galloway introduced his famous plan for a british american parliament as a method for permanent reconciliation the motion to enter the plan on the minutes and to refer it for further consideration gave rise to long and warm debates the motion being carried by a majority of one colony but subsequently probably on october twenty one it was voted to expunge the plan together with all resolutions referring to it from the minutes nothing as benjamin franklin wrote from england could so encourage the british government to persist in its oppressive policy as the knowledge that dissensions existed in the congress and since these dissensions did unfortunately exist there was a widespread feeling that it would be the part of wisdom to conceal them as much as possible no doubt a majority of the deputies when they first read the suffolk resolutions were amazed that the rash new englanders should venture to pledge themselves so frankly to rebellion certainly no one who thought himself a loyal subject of king george could even contemplate rebellion but on the other hand to leave massachusetts in the lurch after so much talk of union and the maintenance of american rights would make loyal americans look a little ridiculous that would be to show themselves lambs as soon as britons had shown themselves lions which was precisely what their enemies in england boasted they would do confronted by this difficult dilemma moderate men without decided opinions began to fix their attention less upon the exact nature of the measures they were asked to support and more upon the probable effect of such measures upon the british government it might be true and all reports from england seemed to point that way that the british government was only brandishing the sword in terrorum to see whether the americans would not run at once to cover in which case it would be wiser for all loyal subjects to pledge themselves even to rebellion the prospect being so very good that britain would quickly sheathe its sword and present instead the olive branch saying this is what i intended to offer therefore rather than leave massachusetts in the lurch and so give the lie to the boasted unity of the colonies many moderate and loyal subjects voted to approve the suffolk resolutions which they thought very rash and ill-advised measures whatever differences still prevailed if indeed practical men could hold out after the accomplished fact might be bridged and compromised by adopting those petitions and addresses which the timid thought sufficient and at the same time by subscribing to and recommending those non-intercourse agreements which the bolder sort thought essential this compromise was in fact effected the congress unanimously adopted the moderate addresses which lord chatham afterwards praised for their masterly exposition of true constitutional principles but it likewise adopted all so unanimously a series of resolutions known as the association to which the deputies subscribed their names by signing the association the deputies bound themselves and recommended the people in all the colonies to bind themselves not to import after december one seventeen seventy four any commodities from great britain or ireland or molasses syrups sugars and coffee from the british plantations or east india company tea from any place or wines from madeira 
or foreign indigo not to consume after march one seventeen seventy five any of these commodities and not to export after september tenth seventeen seventy five any commodities whatever to great britain ireland or the west indies except rice to europe it was further recommended that a committee be formed in each city town and county whose business it should be to observe the conduct of all persons those who refused to sign the association as well as those who signed it and to publish the names of all persons who did not observe the agreements there entered into to the end that all such foes of the rights of a british america may be publicly known and universally condemned as the enemies of american liberty and it was likewise recommended that the committees should inspect the customs entries frequently that they should seize all goods imported contrary to the recommendation of the association and reship them or if the owner preferred sell them at public auction the owner to be recompensed for the first costs the profits if any to be devoted to relieving the people of boston having thus adopted a petition to the king a memorial to the inhabitants of the british colonies and an address to the people of great britain and having recommended a certain line of conduct to be followed by all loyal americans the first continental congress adjourned it had assumed no coercive or legislative authority obedience to its determinations would doubtless depend as mr rutledge had said upon the reasonableness the apparent utility and necessity of its recommendations there can be no doubt the earl of dartmouth is reported to have said that every one who had signed the association was guilty of treason the earl of dartmouth was not counted one of the enemies of america and if this was his opinion of the action of the first continental congress lord north's supporters in parliament a great majority since the recent elections were not likely to take a more favourable view of it nevertheless when the american question came up for consideration in the winter of seventeen seventy five conciliation was a word frequently heard on all sides and even corrupt ministers were understood to be dallying with schemes of accommodation in january and february great men were sending agents and even coming themselves to dr franklin to learn what in his opinion the colonies would be satisfied with lord chatham as might be guessed was meditating a plan on the twenty ninth of january he came to craven street and showed it to franklin who made notes upon it and later went out to hayes two hours ride from london where he remained for four hours listening to the easy flow of the great commoner's eloquence without being able to get any of his own ideas presented fortified by the presence if not by the advice of franklin lord chatham laid his plan before parliament on the first of february he would have an explicit declaration of the dependence of the colonies on the crown and parliament in all matters of trade and an equally explicit declaration that no tax should be imposed upon the colonies without their consent and when the congress at philadelphia should have acknowledged the supremacy of the crown and parliament and should have made a free and perpetual grant of revenue then he would have all the obnoxious acts passed since seventeen sixty four and especially the coercive acts totally repealed lord sandwich in a warm speech moved to reject these proposals at once and when the vote was taken it was found that sixty-one noble lords were in favour of rejecting them at once while only thirty-one were opposed to so doing lord north was perhaps less opposed to reconciliation than other noble lords were a few days later franklin was approached by admiral howe who was understood to know the first minister's mind to learn whether he might not suggest something for the government to go upon the venerable friend of the human race was willing enough to set down on paper some hints which admiral howe might think advisable to show to ministers it happened however that the hints went far beyond anything the government had in mind 
ministers would perhaps be willing to repeal the tea act and the boston port bill but they felt strongly that the act regulating the massachusetts charter must stand as an example of the power of parliament franklin on the other hand was certain that while parliament claims the right of altering american constitutions at pleasure there can be no agreement since the parties were so far apart it seemed useless to continue the informal negotiation and on february twenty lord north laid before parliament his own plan for effecting an accommodation perhaps after all it was not his own plan for lord north much inclined to regard himself as the king's minister was likely to subordinate his wishes to those of his master king george the third at all events had his own ideas on conciliation i am a friend to holding out the olive branch he wrote in february yet i believe that when vigorous measures appear to be the only means the colonies will submit knowing the king's ideas as well as those of dr franklin lord north accordingly introduced into parliament the resolution on conciliation which provided that when any colony should make provision for contributing their proportion to the common defence and for the support of the civil government and the administration of justice in such province it will be proper for so long as such provision shall be made to forbear in respect of such province to levy any duty tax or assessment except for the regulation of commerce the minister's resolution although by most of his supporters thought to be useless was adopted by a vote of two hundred and seventy four to eighty eight it was not the intention of the government to hold out the olive branch by itself lord north and perhaps the king also hoped the colonies would accept it but by all maxims of politics an olive branch was more likely to be accepted if the shining sword was presented at the same time as the only alternative as early as the tenth of february lord north had introduced into parliament a bill finally passed march thirty to restrain the trade and commerce of the new england colonies to great britain ireland and the british islands in the west indies and to exclude these colonies from carrying on any fishery on the banks of newfoundland it being highly unfit that the inhabitants of the said provinces should enjoy the same privileges of trade to which his majesty's faithful and obedient subjects are entitled the provisions of this act were extended to the other colonies in april and meantime measures were taken to strengthen the naval forces the first certain information that lord north had extended the olive branch reached new york april twenty fourth seventeen seventy five two weeks before the day fixed for the meeting of the second continental congress important changes had taken place since the first congress six months earlier had sent forth its resolutions in every colony there was a sufficient number of patriots who saw the reasonableness the apparent utility and necessity of forming the committees which the association recommended and these committees everywhere with a marked degree of success immediately set about convincing their neighbors of the utility and necessity of signing the non-importation agreement or at least of observing it even if they were not disposed to sign it to deny the reasonableness of the association was now indeed much more difficult than it would have been before the congress assembled for the congress having published certain resolutions unanimously entered into had come to be the symbol of america united in defence of its rights and what american if indeed one might call him such would wish to be thought disloyal to america or an enemy of its liberties it required a degree of assurance for any man to set up his individual judgment against the deliberate and united judgment of the chosen representatives of all the colonies and that must be indeed a very subtle mind which could draw the distinction between an enemy of liberty and a friend of liberty who was unwilling to observe the association 
some such subtle minds there were a considerable number in most colonies who declared themselves friends of liberty but not of the association loyal to america but not to the congress one of these was samuel seabury an episcopalian clergyman living in westchester county new york a vigorous downright man who at once expressed his sentiments in a forcible and logical manner and with much sarcastic humour in a series of pamphlets which were widely read and much commended by those who found in them their own views so effectively expressed this westchester farmer for so he signed himself proclaimed that he had always been and was still a friend of liberty in general and of american liberty in particular the late british measures he thought unwise and illiberal and he had hoped that the congress would be able to obtain redress and perhaps even to effect a permanent reconciliation but these hopes were seen to be vain from the day when the congress approved the suffolk resolutions and instead of adopting mr galloway's plan adopted the association for no sane man could doubt that under the thin disguise of recommendations congress had assumed the powers of government and counseled rebellion the obvious conclusion from this was that if one could not be a loyal american without submitting to congress then it was impossible to be at the same time a loyal american and a loyal british subject but if the problem were rightly considered mr seabury thought one might be loyal to america in the best sense without supporting congress for apart from any question of legality the association was highly inexpedient inasmuch as non-importation would injure america more than it injured england and for this reason if for no others it would be found impossible to bully and frighten the supreme government of the nation yet all this was beside the main point which was that the action of congress whether expedient or not was illegal it was illegal because it authorized the committees to enforce the association upon all alike upon those who never agreed to observe it as well as upon those who did and these committees as every one knew were so enforcing it and were imposing penalties upon those who have presumed to violate it the congress talked loudly of the tyranny of the british government tyranny good heavens was any tyranny worse than that of self-constituted committees which in the name of liberty were daily conducting the most hateful inquisition into the private affairs of free british subjects will you choose such committees will you submit to them should they be chosen by the weak foolish turbulent part of the people i will not no if i must be enslaved let it be by a king at least and not by a parcel of upstart lawless committee men End of chapter six part one